continuing on in our message series on the wisdom literature, which we are looking at how to stop learning things the hard way. All of us probably want to do that in our lives. And as we've been looking at the wisdom literature, specifically in the Old Testament, we've been looking at the seven deadly sins, pride, anger, envy, gluttony, sloth, greed, and then lust. We get to talk about sex in church today. Somehow I drew the short straw and I have to do that here. Very exciting. But because we are talking about uh, lust and sex today, uh, I want to just say two things from the beginning. One, some of you have brought your kids uh, to the service, which is great. Uh, I would recommend that if they're not middle school and above, there may be some things that we talk about today that you may not want your kids to know about just yet. Um, And so you are more than welcome to keep them in here. That's up to you as a parent or guardian. That's not up to us. But I just want to at least tell you, give you the heads up uh, before we start talking that this is more of a mature message. Also, anytime that we talk about anything sexual, um, I want to just recognize those in this room who've gone through sexual trauma. Uh, I, I can't imagine what it must be like to live with that kind of baggage every single day, knowing that Somebody took advantage of you against your own will. And so whether that was in the past when you were a child or, or maybe that was in college or more recent even as an adult, uh, from our church family, I just want to say I'm sorry. And we just want to just begin our time praying for you because this is such a hard thing. So would you just pray with us this morning? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your kindness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, I know there are so many here who may have gone through something in their own lives that they carry around even silently to this day, that they were taken advantage of by someone that they did not give permission to do so. And I just pray for them this morning, Lord. I pray, God, that you would give them rest, that you would give them peace, that you would help them to forgive those who maybe have hurt them. And God, that When we're going through these kinds of discussions, Lord, that they would feel safe to be able to leave if they don't feel like it, or they would be able to feel your comfort here as well. Lord, when we talk about a topic like this, uh, I know our culture and our world, it it talks about it all the time. I think it's time to be able to see what you have to say about it too. In your name we pray, amen. There are so many things that have been created or invented in this world for one kind of use, but over time, People misuse those things, and unfortunately, because they misuse those things, they can cause harm to their life or someone else's life. For instance, when Alexander Graham Bell created the telephone, he created it to communicate with other people, to make it more easy to be in touch with those people. Now, uh, a long time after that creation, we have these things called smartphones, and they are way too smart for us. And because we were supposed to use these to talk with people, or now text with people, we don't always use these in those kinds of ways. In fact, we've become so addicted to these things that if we left our kid at home, we probably wouldn't go back for them, but we definitely would go back if we forgot our phone at home. Or how about this? Isn't it interesting that we, we have these phones and we, they were meant to communicate with others, but when we are on these things all the time, we can't even communicate with people in our own rooms or our own kitchens or living rooms anymore. That we become so addicted to these things, they were just meant to help us communicate better, but man, now they've really hurt our lives and made us addicted to something that was never created to be that way. Or I have up here a credit card. 
A credit card is a great tool that hopefully we could use that if we need to purchase something, we can simply swipe it and then we're supposed to pay that off at the end of the month or at least in the next couple of months. But we have forgotten over time that we think that this is free money and we swipe it and we swipe it and we order things on Amazon and other things and then we look at our bill and we think, oh, we can't afford that now. And credit card companies like that. And then they charge us a crazy interest rate. And then we're paying on it and paying on it and paying on it. And pretty quickly, what was meant just to be a tool to help us purchase things now owns us because of the debt that we find ourselves under. Things that were created for a specific reason and we misuse those things. And unfortunately, because we do that, it can cause damage to our lives. If you're tracking with me, I have a feeling you know where I'm going with this. The same is with sex. God created it, and he created it to be good. And unfortunately, when we look at our culture now, it's anything but good. It's marred. It's twisted. It's gone away from the way God created it for. What was supposed to be a gift is now an ordinary commodity in our culture. What was meant to be given as a way to actually worship God more intimately now has led to the worship of other people. So what has happened along the way? Why are we here with this kind of thing that God gave us as a gift, as a blessing? What happens when lust wraps itself around our hearts and won't let go? What kind of damage can that do to our lives? And where do we go from here? How can we get free from these things? So in order to really track with this topic today, I want to look at three words with you today. We want to look at the three words that start with L, because that's what pastors do. Love, lust, and the most important word, liberation. Starts with love here. We're looking at Proverbs as we're looking at these seven deadly sins. And so when it comes to lust, Solomon, who wrote most of Proverbs, is writing to his son about his wife's relationship and what's supposed to happen between a husband and a wife. And so let's look at that this morning. Proverbs chapter 5. He says to his son, drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets, having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now, as we unpack this passage, the key to this passage is found in verse 18 when Solomon says about his son's wife, your wife, son, is a blessing. And when you see that word blessed or blessing throughout the Old Testament and right here in verse 18, we should look at that word as a God-given thing. Anytime that word's used, or at least most of the time it's used, we can see that God is behind that thing. God has gifted that person with that thing. And in this case, God is reminding his, or Solomon's reminding his son, son, your wife is a blessing to you, and your wife is a blessing to you. There's this God-given relationship that he has given the both of you that he wants to bless. And when we look at that, through the lens of what God tells us about marriage, we go all the way back to the beginning when he has created all of creation and he creates Adam and Eve and then he allows Adam and Eve to be the first married couple ever. 
And we read this at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. It says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. That word united literally means taking two souls and uniting two souls together as one. They form one bond, one relationship. And in that bond, there is this intimacy. There is intimacy of emotional intimacy and spiritual intimacy and relational intimacy and sexual intimacy. God created that between Adam and Eve, husband and wife, man and woman, to be together, to come together and to express that in that one bond. It stays there. And right after we read this about a husband and a wife, a man and a woman coming together in unity, we read in the next verse, now this man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. In our culture, there's so much shame when it comes to nakedness, but it was never meant to be like that. Before sin came in this world, not only was everything in that world perfect, but the relationship between husband and wife was perfect. There was freedom. There was no guilt. There was no shame. There was no yuckiness. There was nothing there other than pure freedom between a husband and a wife. And when it comes to sex, it was supposed to stay there and be a blessing, a God-given gift to Adam and Eve. And that's why Solomon says, look, what you have with your wife is such a God-given thing. He instituted this from the beginning. And if you can keep that there between you two, oh, what an incredible gift that you have. And when Solomon's talking to his son, Again, about sexual intimacy, he uses this illustration of water, and it's interesting, he used it three times in four verses. Drink water from your own well. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets? A fountain of blessing is your wife. Three different times, when he's talking about sexual intimacy, he refers to a source of water, that the husband and wife ought to be that source for each other. And what Solomon is saying is just like when you're thirsty, you go and grab a glass of water and that quenches your physical thirst. Or whatever sexual desires you have, you go to the well, you go to the cistern, you go to the fountain of your spouse and that will quench your sexual thirst. Problem though is, many of us do not go to that well. And even if you're here and you say, well, I'm single or I'm divorced or I'm widowed, I don't have a well. God created it in this way and we go outside of that. It's no wonder that so many of us continue to go from different sources of water and yet at the end, we are still thirsty. That brings us to our word lust. The way that Solomon talks about lust is very clear. He tells us in Proverbs 6.25, don't lust for her beauty. Don't let her coy glances seduce you. Seduction and lust, he's already putting those two things together. Tim Keller, in talking about lust, says it's one thing to recognize and appreciate someone's physical attractiveness. I mean, God gave that person physical attractiveness. Let's appreciate that, recognize it. But it's another thing to be intensely driven to possess someone's beautiful body for your own. And then C.S. Lewis, he just goes for it. He goes, strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. Here's what he wants. 
He wants pleasure, for which a beautiful woman is a necessary piece of apparatus. And then Jesus comes along, and he talks about lust. And Jesus says, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You're thinking, all right, Jesus, that's a little prude here. I can't even look at a woman lustfully? You're telling me that's not just the physical act that makes adultery, it's also looking at a woman with undressing her with my eyes, that's also adultery? See, Jesus isn't prude. He's wise. Because he knows that when we do those kinds of things in our thoughts, it entangles itself with our hearts. Our emotions and our thoughts, especially if they're not kept at bay, will lead to actions without us even knowing it. And actions lead to a life, a life of regret. And that's why Jesus says, do not lust even in your, even in your mind. Don't undress a woman or a man with your thoughts because you don't know how those thoughts are going to lead to regrets in your own life. As Solomon continues to talk about lust, he literally says this, for the lips of an immoral woman are as sweet as honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. Now, I don't know about you, but I really, really love honey. It's one of those things where I will admit to you that I know I'm supposed to just put it on uh, maybe like a biscuit or put it on, I don't know, whatever, I put it in a smoothie. There's sometimes I'll look around, no one's looking, I just squeeze it in my mouth because I love honey. <laughs> it's very weird to admit, yes, but it's true. And the good thing about honey, it is sweet, it is delicious, I love it. But imagine if I just ate honey all the time. It wouldn't give me the nutrition that I wanted. And if I were to just continue to eat honey and eat honey and eat honey over and over and over again, especially in one sitting, what will it do? It will make me sick. And what's interesting is Solomon says at first it tastes so good. And then right after that, talking about lust, he says this, but in the end, she is bitter as poison and dangerous as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. It tastes really sweet at first. It tastes so delicious until that's what you only eat and then pretty quickly, what was meant for good goes to be something that ends up killing us. There are people in this room right now, it was just a look or just a glance or just a little emotion that went outside your marriage and it tasted so sweet at first. Until now, you're playing with fire and oh, fire can warm you. Fire, you can cook food, but it can kill you if you're not Paying attention. You see, love, love is giving of yourself. When love is about giving of yourself, especially sexually, you're not just thinking about your own pleasure, you're thinking about your other spouse's pleasure. But lust, lust is always getting something. 
getting something that doesn't belong to you in the first place. And you will do whatever it takes, even sacrificing your own heart and the other person so you can have what doesn't belong to you in the first place. One of the things that attaches itself to lust that I believe is such a huge problem in our culture that we just say it's just a part of it is pornography. How crazy is this? $3,075.64 is spent on porn every second on the internet. $3,000 more dollars. $3,000 more dollars. $3,000 more dollars. Over and over and over again. The porn industry has more money than ABC, NBC, CBS, and Netflix. Combined. One in five mobile searches for pornography. 20% of the time when people are on Google searching something, it is for honey, sweets, but will kill you. 51% of male students and 32% of female students first viewed porn before their teenage years. Parents and guardians, this is not a time for me to give you a lecture on how to parent. That is not my role. But when we read this, and then we read, on average, the first exposure to pornography among men is 12 years old. And we just give phones and iPads just freely to use with no restrictions on internet because they're a pacifier for our kids because, honestly, it keeps them busy. And their friends have phones and their friends are doing that so we don't want to battle that so we just give in. And I'm not judging any of you because my wife and I are fighting this battle every day. You could be doing damage unintentionally to your kids because all of a sudden the kid searches for something and all of a sudden they spell something wrong or an advertisement comes up. It's just one look. I know a friend who started looking at pornography it wasn't even on the internet. It was in magazines with his cousin and still struggles with it to this day, 30 years later. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. It's just honey. It's sweet. It's delicious. Until... It tears you apart or hurts the people that you love the most until it bankrupts you because you're so addicted you want to give more money and more money to it. Until it physiologically, and psychologically messes up our kids by rewiring our brains. If you don't believe me, put into Google, how does pornography rewire our brains as kids, as adults? It literally switches your brain pattern. It's a drug a drug that's harder to get off of than cocaine. Proven fact. It can mess up, our, mess up our marital vows. Because lust wants something that is not ours. And it starts off so sweet, so delicious. It can lead to the grave. You know, I always hear it say that lust and pornography is, is, a, is a problem for males. And I would 100% agree with that. I would say in all men, 
all men deal with it in certain levels. Some, it's an extreme addiction. Others, it's just a, a normal struggle. And then we have to get this under control. We have to do something about it. But also in women, it's a problem too. It just looks differently because men and women are wired differently. In an incredible article that I read from Kelly Needham, she talks about lust in women and she puts it this way. For most women, the lust battle is birthed in the emotions. The idea of emotional intimacy and sensuality can be a lot more tempting than a naked body. So whether lust is defined as undressing somebody with our eyes or looking at something that isn't of our spouse or physically crossing the line or just flirting with someone at work because that person's giving you attention that your spouse isn't. Lust is always wanting something, needing something, taking something that's not yours. And it's a huge, huge problem that we have to get under control. And so what do we do about it? That's where the word liberation comes in. Liberation, freedom. How do we find freedom from this? Because this is not meant to shame or guilt you. This is meant to unlock the door so you can go free once and for all. See, Jesus, when he was on earth, he was walking around and he ends up teaching one of the greatest sermons of all time. It went Sermon on the Mount, Pastor Jay's sermons, and then everything else. It was so good that we go back to it over and over again because the Sermon on the Mount literally is teaching us how we can embrace heaven now. We all think about heaven as somewhere where we go when we die. Heaven can be here if we live it according to God's standards and his way. And as Jesus is teaching this incredible sermon, he talks about what purity looks like. And he says in Matthew 5, 8, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. That word blessed literally means happy. This isn't a feelings-based happiness or a circumstance-based happiness. It's a happiness that is dependent upon living life God's way. And that happiness will sustain you no matter what you're going through in life. And he says, if you really want to be happy, live God's way, and to do that, live with purity of heart, which means to live a life of cleanliness, of blamelessness. You don't justify every, anything, that you're pursuing purity with your entire being. And what's so interesting is that when we try, with God's help, to live this pure life, Jesus says, you will literally see God. I was talking with someone after the service yesterday dealing with pornography, and he was just telling me how he has this rough relationship with God. And we, we finally discovered it was probably because of pornography. And we talked about this verse. And I said, think about it this way. If you're here and God is here and you want to see God. And you want God to see you. And you want all that he has for you. And nothing should be able to get in that way for that to happen. If you put pornography in there, it's a wall. You, this, God. So if it's pornography or lust and you're feeling distant from God, I can promise you God's been here the whole time. 
You have to remove what's in front of that in order to really see God. And God says that's when we live with a pure heart. And it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer that says purity of heart is to will one thing. What he's saying is it has to be all-encompassing. Not one foot in and one foot out. Not try hard one day and then go back to our old way. It's everything. We approach it as if our freedom depends on it. We go after it to make sure our hearts can really see God so we can be blessed by him. So how do we do that? If we want to be free and purity is freedom, how can we be pure today? Because I know some of you are on your edge of your seat wanting to know because I was like that too. If we're looking at the wisdom literature over these weeks, we'll be looking at Job in a few weeks. Pastor Jay will be teaching on that here. And Job, in the midst of his struggles with trying to figure out why God is allowing bad things to happen in his life, he says this in the midst of it. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. I don't know Job's background with lust. I don't know if it was a big problem or a small problem. I probably can guess it was a problem. Because he's a man and he's a struggler just like you and I. But he wanted to take this so seriously. Purity of heart was his one thing so seriously that he literally made a covenant, a vow with God himself, a promise to God that he will not live a life of lust. It doesn't mean he's not going to struggle with it. The only perfect person on this planet Earth is back in heaven, seated next to the Father right now. He's not perfect, but... There's a difference of wanting something and wanting something. He knew. He knew it was at stake in his heart. And so he made a vow, a promise to God that he would not look lustfully at a woman. My question to you, male and female, what would it look like for us to take this issue so seriously that we make a promise before God himself that we won't live a life of lust. Now, I'm not saying, okay, right now, yeah, Lord, I promise you. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. I mean, you need to pray about this. You need to go all in on this. And just know, when you make a promise, you may break it. God will never break it with you. But you, if you really want this, You need to go to the extremes of what Job has done because he realizes what it will do to his life if he doesn't. That he made a vow to him, and I don't want to break a vow to God. And if I do struggle with it, I want someone to help me with that because we need each other in order to uphold our vows to God. And that's why James says, towards the end of the Bible, he says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. James knows that we're going to break our vows to God. He knows we're going to struggle. And we need people in our lives that we can look at and literally tell them anything and everything. And knowing that they will pray for us and remind us that Jesus loves us and forgives us and will help us to uphold that vow with God. So who is that person that will be that accountability person with you? Who is that person that can ask you anything and that you will tell them the truth and they will help encourage you to uphold that vow of remaining pure with your heart? The other option that I think is going to be incredible is that Ken Rawson, who's on our staff here, is going to lead a class on sexual integrity. We want to show you what that looks like right now. Healing and freedom from the effects of unwanted sexual behavior is possible. But for so many, the path has been lit. 
Short-term solutions that don't work and tons of shame carry the entire way. A lot of us have never heard the words that you have to be perfect, but most of us have experienced the idea of you better not screw up. Satan's lies are all about accusing us, about keeping us stuck, keeping us in shame. We know the feeling of powerlessness that sets in when you promised you'd never go back to that old behavior, but you found yourself there again. I was binge purging between being at church three times a week and serving on the women's team and the worship team, and then going out on weekends and hooking up with somebody. We know the feelings of betrayal and hopelessness that overpowers our ability to function day to day. I was just mostly in shock. I just wanted him away from me. Because of the trauma that I was experiencing in my first marriage, my brain was grasping for any amount of control. But we believe that this course is the first step toward breaking free and finally feeling hope and confidence that change is possible. When you really get under the surface of our sexual issues, we find that we are all so similar as human beings. When I stopped and started to experience sobriety and freedom, then the truth of who God sees me as his loved son who he delights in, no matter what, started to be able to sink in. This course will combine biblical truth with practical tools to create lifelong change. We know this because each of us in this course has experienced this firsthand, and we've seen hundreds of thousands of other men and women break free, heal their relationships, and really get their lives back. And that's the class, and hopefully you'll consider that. Uh, that same information is in your worship program, so you can take it home with you and give some thought to it or share it with somebody. Please do that. Um, we, we have, uh, we're, we're coming near the end of our walk through what's called the wisdom literature. We still have to look at the book of Ecclesiastes and then the book of Job. But as of today, we're just finishing uh, the seven deadly sins, they're called, through the book of Proverbs. We started with pride, which is the root of them all, and then anger, and then envy, and then gluttony, and then sloth, and then greed, and today, lust. Which one do you wrestle with? One, more, all seven? The, the book of Proverbs is very much parallel to what Pastor Eric referred to earlier as the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That is, blessed are those who recognize their deep, deep, deep need for God. When you're reading through Proverbs and you come across the seven deadly sins, it really should bring us to our knees. And we say, who can live like that? I can't, not on my own. I, I need God. I need forgiveness. That's what I need, forgiveness. And that is the gospel. That's why we're here. We celebrate Jesus, the good news. One died for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God has given us the gift of forgiveness, a gift we could never come up with for ourselves. It is... On God alone, we depend through Christ. In just a moment, we're going to hold the bread and the cup. Hopefully, you received a little container when you came in. The bread is on the top if you just want to peel away the top. And the bread and the cup is a reminder. It's a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ where he took our sin onto himself. And that in exchange for our faith in him, he gives us the gift of forgiveness. It's yours. It's mine. Let's bow our heads together, please. 
And now as we hold the bread and the cup in our hands, would you take a moment and just quietly to God, confess whatever it is you need to say to him. And now in the very next breath, thank God for the gift of Jesus Christ through whom you have complete forgiveness. Talk to God about that. And then just a word of commitment to Jesus to to be his follower. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, he held it, broke it, and said, this bread represents my body given for you, broken for you. Whenever you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. Let's eat it together. And then Jesus took the cup And he says, this represents my blood shed for you. It represents the new covenant. It represents God's commitment to you, to all those who have placed their faith in him, in Christ. Whenever you drink this, do it in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Let's drink it together. And now, God, we thank you for this um, reminder of what is ours through Christ alone. We are completely known by you, and yet through Christ, completely forgiven. We're grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.